0: I think especially for young adults, especially for that first 10 years after someone has graduated and is starting their career, just acknowledging that they're not going to be able to fully compartmentalize, that the things that are happening in the rest of their life, in their romantic relationships, in their caregiving responsibilities, it is going to influence their work and not pegging that as unprofessional, but accepting it as part of the whole human being.
1: welcome to the health leader forge my name is mark bonica and i'm an associate professor in the department of health management and policy at the university of new hampshire today's guest is my colleague dr tyler jameson associate professor of human development and family studies here at the university of new hampshire tyler is an expert in the field of young adult romantic relationships I asked Tyler to join me today because romantic relationships are an important part of health and leading a meaningful and fulfilling life. In this podcast, we talk about how Tyler came to study emerging adults and romantic relationships, what emerging adulthood is, and ultimately how leaders should understand that emerging adults have unique needs particular to their life stage. I hope you enjoy listening to Tyler's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording? It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Dr. Tyler Jamison. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Hi, thank you. You went to the, to Miami University, which is actually in Ohio, not Florida. Um, it is. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, I I know I like. Almost everybody else, I think, gets that mixed up. Uh, And you studied psychology with a minor in family relationships. So what brought you to Miami University and why psychology? What were you thinking?
0: So... I, this is actually not evident from any of the materials that you would have looked at before. But I actually grew up in the deep south. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee okay. until I was 14. And then my family moved to champaign or Bennett, Illinois. My dad was actually an academic. But during most of my childhood, he worked in industry. He's a biomedical engineer. And so when we moved to Illinois, he returned to the academy. He went to work at the University of Illinois. And when I was choosing colleges then, I was interested in staying in the Midwest where I was driving distance from my parents, and I wish I had a, a more a more mature answer to how I landed at Miami. But the truth is I went on a tour and it looked like college. It just it was all red brick buildings and I thought, this is what college is supposed to look like and I'm gonna come here.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And psychology really I think came out of a, a deep and longstanding interest in people. I'm the youngest of three children and I don't put a lot of stock in birth order as a major determinant of personality or being. But I think it gives a person a perspective on their family. It gives them an incentive to be very observant of the people around them. You can learn a lot from the mistakes of your siblings. <laughs> you can learn a lot about your parents if you're the only one left. So I spent four years, my four years of high school, I was alone with my parents. And I think I, I became deeply interested in how people function. And so psychology just felt like, the thing i most wanted to study and i can't say i had any real career plans based on that it's just where i wanted to be and things unraveled from there
1: so were you so you were not thinking i want to be a therapist or something like that it was just this kind of general field it sounded interesting based on your interest in people.
0: Yes. I think early in my college career, I imagined that I might be a clinician. That's the logical place you go to if you think about being interested in people. But I figured out really quite quickly, I'll give myself some credit here, that I like to give advice more than I... I'm a better you something than I am a listener. And that does not make a good therapist. It just does not. Right. You can't tell people what to do. It's not. It, it doesn't work. And so, I figured out fairly quickly that I needed a career that was more geared toward either developing knowledge, teaching, right? I had a bit of a stroke of um, recognition. One day, I was walking across campus. I was leaving class, and I thought, the classroom is a place that makes sense to me as a student, but it also, I think, might make sense to me in reverse. And I think that's one of the first times I really realized, oh, this is something else I could do that fits me a little better than a, than a clinical career, for example.
1: Now, that's interesting, because, and we'll circle back to this, but you are a qualitative researcher, so you do do a lot of listening.
0: I do. <laughs> I do. But then later, I get to leave and tell what I think about it. I see, I see. Again, okay. not what okay. a therapist gets All right. to do. awesome.
1: Now – you started well you graduated with a degree in psychology but you also had a minor in you also had a minor in family relationships so how did you discover this um, was that was that a, is that was that hdfs at miami
0: it was so hdfs is something we consider to be A discovery major. Almost no students come to college knowing that our field exists. So students that are interested in people land in sociology, they land in psychology, and sometimes they wander into one of our classes and realize, oh, this is a really nice combination of some of the things that I like to do. Um, It's highly contextual. We really care about the developing person in the context of all the things going on around them. And that was me, right? But I wasn't prepared to leave my major in psychology. I liked it. I don't love change. So I picked it up as a minor, right? I can pick and choose what I like out of this major, take a few classes, feel good about it. And so that's how that combination came to be.
1: Okay. So you graduate with this undergrad in psychology with the minor in family relationships, but you pretty much go straight to graduate school at University of Missouri in human development and family studies. Mm-hmm. So, so, what changed? Um,
0: so, as I was going through my psychology program, I took a required class and we had a guest speaker who was also a faculty member in the department and he gave a guest lecture on humanistic psychology. This is a movement in psychology from the 1960s that was pushing back against behaviorism, understanding the person sort of as an organism, and wanting to understand people as thinking, feeling beings. It was a bit more holistic. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs came out of humanistic psychology, and I was enthralled by this guy. I thought, this, this makes sense to me, right? Um, I can't remember what class I was in, but it bored the skin off my face. And, and it was the best, you know, it was the best day of that class I had had. And I thought, I've got to take a class with this guy. So the next semester rolls around and I'm signing up for classes. And I sign up for what I think is a class with this person. And the title of the class was incredibly vague. It was something like approaches to individual psychology, but I thought it's irrelevant. I want to take a class with this person. I walk into class the first day, and I think, this guy doesn't look totally like that guy, but they're all kind of older white guys, like, who maybe I don't remember. Okay. As the semester goes on, I realize two important things. One is, it is not the guest lecturer. I have indeed signed up for a class I don't understand with a professor I do not know. But he lets out of the bag early in the semester that his actual MO for the class is to teach us narrative psychology the psychology of stories, but that as a qualitative researcher, he could never get a syllabus approved by that department to teach narrative psychology to undergraduates. So he made up the vaguest course title ever, and then under the radar, taught undergraduates essentially qualitative research. And this was, this was a huge spark to me, right? This was everything I thought was interesting about people. This made sense to me for the first time, and so that is really what sparked me to start thinking about graduate school, to start thinking about myself in, in maybe a research career. Um, I started attending a qualitative reading group that was being held, and it was psychology. The, the one psychology professor I had, a handful of graduate students in the department, and a, a professor from an assistant professor from what at Miami was. What was, I don't even remember the name of that department, but it was HDFS at Miami. And so that's how I got to know even a little bit more what research in HDFS looked like. So this is a long story to explain oh, that, that those couple of professors suggested to me that I might have a skill set that made sense for graduate school. I had no other plans for my psychology degree, but I wasn't sure which field to apply to. So I applied to, I applied to both. I applied to a handful of programs in psychology and a handful of PhD programs in HDFS. And HDFS is just where I landed. It's what made the most sense. It's where I got in. The professor I had met, the assistant professor, Elise Redina from HDFS, was a graduate of the University of Missouri program. So there was a little bit of a lineage there that I ended up becoming part of. So Missouri, kind of random, but I had, um, I had an academic family, right, that was connecting okay, me to that, that program. That's how I landed there
1: wow I I mean really that's a really unusual and what a serendipitous kind of uh, oh yeah thing to discover qualitative I mean I didn't hear about quality I, I didn't know the difference until I was in grad school and you know that's that's fascinating so talk about the field of, of human development family studies you're, you're going into grad school maybe what were you thinking you would study and and do and 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 how is that how was the field presented to you?
0: So I'm not sure I had a very good grasp of the field until I got to graduate school, which is quite a confession, but I'll make it. I mean, I had some, certainly some sense from taking a number of classes in HDFS, but if you had asked me to articulate thoughtfully the differences between psychology and HDFS, I would have struggled to do that as an undergraduate. Once I got to graduate school, I started to realize that what HDFS was doing was bringing in much more consideration for both the people around a person, those closest to them. It was really focused on the study of close relationships. And it was also really focused on contextual factors in the environment, right? So, how do we understand how your social identity, your race, your social class, your gender, how are those things all playing together to impact your relationships, to impact your development? So, it's this beautiful marriage between the individual focus of psychology, which we take up as individual development, and sociology, which is talking about the social forces on folks. But it's niche, like it's it's little place where it lives is it's also talking about relationships in a way that sociology doesn't, nor does psychology. I think that's what makes it special. What is the nature of our connections to others? How do we understand those in a really um, rigorous and specific way? How do people interact with each other? How do they uh, build bonds with one another? That's why it ended up making a lot of sense. I, I kind of landed there by accident. But as someone who wanted to study romantic relationships, it, it ended up
1: being a really, really good fit. So how did you know I mean so so you, you already thought you wanted to study romantic relationships? I did what was the inspiration for that? Me search. Me search. Me search, nice. right. yeah. What Who doesn't does want mean? some me I love search? That. I love that term. What does that mean?
0: I, I wanted to do research about myself. I wanted to do research <laughs> about the pursuit of love as a young adult. So I did some me search.
1: Being a young adult yourself. I was. Yes. I was twenty (laughs) two.
0: Yeah. I was twenty two. I knew I wanted to get married and have a family. And I wanted my relationship to be really, really amazing. And I wanted to find just the right partner. And why not just study how other people do that? So again, like I would love to say I had some deeper or more I would love to tell you I had some other motivation, but I didn't.
1: That's a great motivation. I love it.
0: <laughs> and the, the, um, the interesting thing is that I still sort of do me search, but now I'm no longer a young adult. <laughs> so I'm having to grapple with... I have to
1: uh, accept I know. that fact. Right. We have to right.
0: grapple with the fact that, oh, I'm no longer who I study. <laughs> and I, I think I'm okay with it. And so, yeah, that's how I landed there. But I got scooped up by two of the most prominent researchers in the field of divorce and remarriage. And by the time I got to them, they are Larry Ganon and Mary Marilyn Coleman. Uh, they were actually married to each other, and were had made a step family together. And so, by the time I started studying with them, they really had moved away from divorce and were talking about step families.
1: So, doing a little me search on their own. Oh, for sure, research maybe.
0: Yes, some research for sure, <laughs> for sure. But they were That's some awesome. of the you know <laughs> they were pioneers in that area of research, and. And also, when I got there, they were really digging into qualitative research. So, they taught me how to how to do – I knew I wanted to do qualitative research, and they taught me how to do it.
1: That's cool. So, I mean, and that's a um, – I, 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 when I went to do my PhD, um, I was fairly clueless about uh, my field, which is econ- was economics. And – uh, one of the things I didn't really know was how important it was to find a faculty mentor mm-hmm. to build your ultimately build your committee on because somebody's got to evaluate your research and get, bless your dissertation right. So well, I, I was just like completely oblivious to that. So it's nice that you found that like right away.
0: Oh, I think I was oblivious oh, you? too. We were
1: oblivious too. Yeah, nice. no, All right, there's great. a
0: lot of uh, luck and chance in this early <laughs> career development for Fantastic. me. A lot of just random strokes of things happening. Um, uh-huh. They scooped me up, and I okay. thought, "Great, glad glad you want to work with me." And and they happened to be just really strong and very good
1: teachers. Yeah. And was that because you expressed an early interest in in qualitative? Because you were interested in the romantic relationships, which is. I'm tangential to divorce. I mean, it is. That's when it doesn't go well, right? So,
0: exactly. Um, and, you know, I think uh, I was strategic enough. I had learned that qualitative was not always well accepted. Okay. I knew this. I mean, I had, t- I had taken a class with a professor who couldn't teach it in the open. It was so salacious, right? <laughs> like, oh, I want to do this thing that people don't really like you to do. And so, I knew well enough that when I was applying to graduate schools, I, I should say that I want to be a mixed-method researcher. Okay. I knew. Okay. I couldn't come okay. out and say I wanted to just do qualitative. So I had woven some story about wanting to do both. And I, I think my interest in romantic relationships was close enough for them, and the qualitative piece made sense to them. And so that's how I ended up in their, in their group.
1: Okay. So you were doing – I mean, your some of your early pubs both reflect the fact that you were working with them. Yes. And then your own research – your own – ultimate interest in romantic relationships as well. Yes, they humored me. They humored you. Nice. Well, that's awesome. Um, so before we talk about kind of your research and and um, and teaching, I want to kind of bring you up, your career up to the present. So you graduated with your PhD in 2012. You stayed on at the University of Missouri uh, working in the department as an assistant teaching professor and then director of graduate studies until 2014 when you Came here to UNH as an assistant professor. And just to kind of finish up that line, congratulations on tenure for last year, <laughs> right? Uh, so that's awesome. Um, what, what drew you to UNH? Because um, it's a long way from Missouri.
0: Sure. So this is where my story really starts to get enmeshed with my family life, which you and I have talked about in other contexts. But I met my husband in my PhD program. So he also has a PhD in HDFS. Um, he was actually assigned to shadow a class that I was teaching as a, as a grad instructor, I was teaching intimate relationships and marriage and he was assigned to observe my class so that he could teach it the following semester. And um, I, I had lots of side conversations with him as we talked about did that class. But there was just no sense to me that I was interested in dating this person. And I can remember now, he would come up to me after class sometimes and say, you know, I'm I'm working at my other job, which he worked at a piano bar, a dueling piano bar at night.
1: Does he play piano?
0: No, he was the bouncer. Oh, he was the bouncer. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, That's very similar. And if you saw him, you would recognize, yes, he looks like a bouncer. Okay. And he would say, "I oh, know you should come by, and I'm thinking to myself, "Why would I come by?" I, I you know it was I was completely obtuse that he was attempting to get me out of the classroom and out into the world near him. Like this was completely lost on me. <laughs> and so we uh, he helped me Proctor the final exam, and he said, we should we sent me an email and said we should grab a beer after the final." And I thought, oh, he's been kind of helpful. I should say yes like I, I don't know. He's helped me with some things. I like. I don't want to be a jerk about it, and so I said sure. And then I realized that the final exam was at nine thirty in the morning or something. So it ended at like ten forty-five, Mark. And so we went out for this beer in the morning. Nice. It was the morning, okay. And we were there all day
1: drinking beer. I, I we, we, yeah. <laughs> I
0: drank slowly. I'm five foot two, but yeah, we were there all day, and wow. I thought, oh. So So a
1: little bit of connection, telling you
0: my my telling you the love story of my life is a little bit off topic, but it's not because it meant that I then was then connected with this other person, also in pursuit of a PhD on a slightly different timeline from me. So that two years I spent there, I was waiting. waiting I was waiting for him. Yeah, we got married in 2011. So we got married the year before I finished my degree. And then he had a couple years left. And they were wonderful to give me a place to be um, to work in a meaningful way while he finished his degree. That's nice. So that's how we finished up. He actually graduated 10 days after our first child was born. So, wow. um, okay. <laughs> right. So, um, we ended up, I went on the job market while he was finishing his degree. And uh, this was just an a plus job for me. I knew, I knew here this was here at UNH yeah. was, it was a really good fit for me. And I was thrilled out of my mind when I got the
1: offer. What was a good fit? What did, you, what did you like about it?
0: I, I think I really wanted to come to a place where I could be a good scholar and also be an excellent teacher. It mattered to me that I be in a place that did not ask me to punt my teaching in the service of a level of scholarship that I didn't really aspire to. Or that I wanted to be optional. I wanted to be able to engage my scholarship in a way that left space for me to be a person and be an excellent teacher and be a good mentor to students. That mattered to me. That's a lot of what gave me a sense of purpose about academic life. And I got the sense very quickly that UNH was a place that was going to do that for me. That strong focus on undergraduate education and 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 yet a teaching load that was going to leave space for me to be a scholar to develop research in a way that felt exciting and good. And I imagined that I was going to be able to bring my spouse with me. He was also a great researcher and a fantastic teacher. And I thought, good, I'll get a job and then I'll get him a job. It was a little naive, (laughs) Mark. It was a little bit naive. There wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity to bring him with me. And, uh, so we had to have one of those, one of those really hard conversations that you have sometimes as a committed couple where you've got to choose one person's needs or ambitions over the other. And he looked at me and said, this is an A plus job for you and we're going to take it. And I'm going to figure That's it out. supportive. Yeah, I'm going to figure it out. I always figure it out, he says. And so I took it and we came with just one job. We yeah. came with just the job for me. And we also were new parents at that time. So when we came here, we had a son that was three months old. Wow. And so, you know, that was a time of a lot of transition in my professional life, but my personal life too. And that kind of, that that all weaves together in the story of our, of how things have developed for me in terms of my career.
1: That's neat. So let's talk about you know what you do here at UNH. So so you, you said you have a real passion for teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you received the teaching award what two years ago now for the college.
0: It's more than that. It's oh me. I think it might have been two thousand eighteen. Oh I know. Time how, gets how weird. Years go
1: by so fast. <laughs> I know. Um, so what do you like to teach? What do you teach? What do you like to teach?
0: I love to teach about relationships. I love teaching students that there is a science about relationships. We sometimes assume that this is just something we do, we stumble through, and there's actually things to know that can make our relationships healthier, that can make them um, more stable, that can make them more satisfying just in general. And I love being able to tell young people, here are these things. There's, there's something really powerful about that knowledge to me because it can, it can make their lives better, smoother, easier.
1: that's neat and that ties into your research as well it does so i want to talk about your research um, and and i imagine we'll circle back to to thoughts on teaching and and so forth as well um so you you still do research on romantic relationships with uh during emerging adulthood Mm -hmm. um so i want to like throw out some some general kind of questions to to get the some some thoughts on theory and kind of what are we talking about here? So what is a relationship? And, and within the definition of a relationship, what is a romantic relationship?
0: I, I think relationships can be defined so broadly as the ongoing connections we have with other people. And so um, a romantic relationship adds to that some element of Additional closeness and intimacy, whether that's emotional closeness or sexual closeness, I don't think you always have to have both in order for it to be a romantic relationship. But I think, in most of our understanding as a culture, what we understand as a rom- romantic relationship is an ongoing connection that has a specific type of romantic and or emotional and or sexual
1: intimacy. Okay, so I mean, distinguish that from. You know, a very close friend. Like when I, I have a, I'm thinking of a, I have a friend, um, that I talk, uh, army, former army buddy of mine who I talk to every, I don't know. Couple of months, I guess, and my wife laughs because when he calls, I'll I'll pick up the phone and I, and and she's she she can tell immediately just by the way I say hello that it's him like mm-hmm. like within like like she can like you know how many you know and how many words can you tell Mark's talking to his buddy and and so and I would say we have a very close relationship, but it's not a romantic relationship, right? So what's the difference? I
0: I can't I it can't be sex because I've studied too many relationships. Yeah. That people identify as romantic in nature that don't have any sexual component to them. And so it's it's got to be some other way that we're thinking about one another. I think it's subjective. This is why I'm a qualitative researcher. Mm-hmm. Is I think mo- the way that I think about and define romantic relationships and romantic development is not easy to define or quantify in a universal kind of way. So – and that's why i want to define things through examples through stories through experiences and it's it's why you're hearing me struggle with with like operationalizing yeah, right, right 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 it's kind of not how i approach it so i'm stumbling around this i'm getting around all the edges but there's a lot of contingencies there are you know i would i would accept someone who comes up and says i've got a romantic relationship with this person and i've never met them it's all online it's okay, just, nice. it's just the way that I talk to them, write to them, engage with them feels romantic to me. I would take that, sure, okay. yeah.
1: And then you know, as a quality research, you'd ask them, like, well, what does it make? How does it make it romantic? What 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 exactly in that you're right right is it that's making it romantic? Right. I mean, that's a great example. Given you know, I mean, in the last twenty years, that that has really become possible. Mm-hmm. Um, to was it 20? No, twenty? 20? Yeah. Oh God. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's thirty. You got mail, right? Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> um, so, so romantic relationship. We'll talk more about this. But, but um, you and I also have some common interest in emerging adulthood. I do. I have done a fair amount of research on career development and uh, and transition from school to work. I've done it with my our, our colleague Cindy Hartman. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want to talk a little, I want you to kind of define what is this idea of of an emerging adult or emerging adulthood?
0: So emerging adulthood is, I like to think of it as the transition to adulthood. That there's this period of time that people with a certain amount of privilege typically have a moratorium on adult responsibilities. They're not in caregiving roles. They're sometimes, often not fully financially independent. right? They've got some support that's in place there. They're really only responsible for themselves for a while. And that enables a lot of different things. It enables a little bit more identity development, a continuation of identity development that begins in adolescence. It, it provides them um, an opportunity to really explore in terms of career and romantic relationships. And I'm really interested in the intersection of those two things. Mm, I think mm -hmm. they're, they're not separate Mm -hmm. the ways that we explore love and career. It also is a time when people tend to be very optimistic. There's a lot ahead of them and they also tend to be pretty self-focused. This time is about me. It's about figuring out what I'm doing, who I want to be with and who I want to be. And so that time of, of change and instability is really interesting to me. How do you come to form ideas about what kind of partner you want and what kind of partner you want to be? A lot of that's going to crystallize during that emerging adult time, which is around ages eighteen to twenty-nine.
1: Yeah. So, so historically, but like today we, uh, the literature now defines emerging adulthood as eighteen to twenty-nine. Not that long ago, when it, when it was first articulated, which this is not an old theory. I mean, this is like. 20 years old. Yes, 20 years old. This is actually accurate. 20 years.
0: Yes, old. <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it was first articulated about, about in, in the early 2000s and and has been developed since. And it was originally articulated as 18 to 25. It's now been extended to 29, which is I think is interesting. Do you think the original conception was wrong? Do you think it's evolved? Has it changed in 20? Tw- has culture changed in 20 years such that the that that moratorium period is extending?
0: I'm not sure that it's – I'm not sure that that moratorium has gotten longer. I think as we really operationalized and understood what was unique about emerging adulthood, we saw that having a a spouse, having a child, these are the off-ramps of emerging adulthood. And most people in American culture are neither married nor parents before the age of 29. That differs greatly in terms of education level and socioeconomic status. I think we're going to talk about that too. But for the people that are privileged enough to have that moratorium, they're likely not to be married, not to be partnering until their late 20s or early 30s, which is what makes sense about defining it that way to me. So that's the age span I use. And I often study people up to age 35 because I want to know about all of their emerging adulthood. I want them to be able to talk to me about the entire decade from 18 back, to 29 exactly yeah, as
1: opposed to being in the middle of it
0: and po- yeah but okay. i don't yeah i want them to be able to make sense of that time for themselves and you can do that really only in hindsight i think yeah,
1: yeah. i i mean one of the things that i think is interesting you raised the the issue or, or you raised the point and that is this is this this idea of emerging adulthood Involves a degree of privilege, right? So a degree of socioeconomic privilege. Uh, it's more dominant in particular, even in the United States, it's more dominant in particular classes of people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, I mean, there. This has been hotly debated in the emerging adulthood. It's it's kind of a field now. There is a conference. There is a journal, and and so uh, there are certainly people who would disagree with me, but I do think that. People with less privilege are more likely to have some of those off-ramps that require them to no longer be self-focused, to no longer be able to explore in the same ways their careers or their romantic lives. They don't have some of those same freedoms. I do think even folks that have caregiving responsibilities or financial responsibilities and, and, and have less privilege may still have some of that identity development and, um, and, and some of that sort of openness to new ideas that we see characterize this age group across other, other socioeconomic levels. So uh, let me say that a little bit more clearly, which is just to say, I think some of the characters, there's, there's really five characteristics of emerging adulthood, which I've talked about in, in context. I think some of them can still hold whether you have privilege or not, whether you have kids or not. But some of them really do end if you end up with major caregiving or financial responsibilities, and so that's where we see, I think, a division between those that are most privileged and those that are less so. So, what would you say? Can you rattle off the five? Rattle off the
1: five. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna put you.
0: No, exam. I think, I think <laughs> the exam <okay>. begins. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, emerging adulthood is a time of self-focus. It's a time of instability. It's a time of feeling in between adolescence and adulthood. It's a time of optimism and growth, the, the assumption that things, you know, a, a lot of things can happen. It's exploration of love and work. Those are the five. And so I think some of those are going to apply fairly universally and some of them are not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, when we were talking before um, this interview and we were talking about a book called um, Promises I Can Keep. And it's a qualitative. It's a it's a piece of qualitative research where the researchers spoke with uh, young women who um, were teen teen mothers basically, or or very young mothers, Um, and they would be. They normally they would fit into that eighteen to twenty five. bracket but they had had children and so based on kind of the standard um definition of of or 18 to 29 i should say um but but regardless um they had had children and so based on kind of the standard interpretation of emerging adulthood they had taken one of those major off-ramps even as an as a very young person you know and and this uh, this, i think the, the book is fabulous and just explaining some of the and this is typically the the populations that that were included in this are primarily lower socioeconomic status groups so lower income, but of course but across all uh, they intentionally sampled across all races and ethnicities so that it's you know uh, um, and I just I, I look at that and I think about I don't know I, I try to think you' you're phrasing it very sympathetically like are, are they really? are they really not emerging adults because they've taken – because they've had children, right? And I mean like one of the – one of the things that I first got exposed to and it found interesting was talking with a, a friend of mine who's a physician – who is a uh, pediatrician board certified uh and adolescent medicine and she was explaining to me and I did hadn't known this up until our conversation my conversation with her is the brain doesn't stop developing until around 25, 25 right so so that 18 to 25 actually makes some physiological sense uh, i mean yeah. 18 to 29 you could say sociologically but physiologically like there's a physical process going on um that you know we still have brain development happening so even if you've had a child at a very young age you know in that window or even maybe before it the brain doesn't cha- doesn't stop developing like it's not used. so there is some something else going on maybe too and i mean i'm just kind of thinking out, out loud with with you here on, on sure. this you know Sure.
0: And you know another little pocket of work um i actually got to collaborate with my husband on a project that He spearheaded when he worked for the Department of Education in, in New Hampshire, he secured a grant to help support teen fathers in the state. And I collaborated a little bit with him on some of the family focused aspects of that programming. And I think what we really observed was, and later we actually also included teen moms because the, the funder said, can you expand? And we said, sure, was that it is important if you're working with young people, Even those that have major responsibilities, they've taken that off ramp. They're not emerging adults in the way we often think about it. That they are still doing some of the things that we see more privileged young people doing. They're still figuring out who they are. And if an employer or a social service worker can better understand these folks as transitioning to parenthood and adulthood at the same time, maybe we could provide them with more thoughtful supports and services. Because part of that is purely developmental. It's not necessarily, as you're saying, that brain development is going to be happening regardless of what someone's social age is based on their social roles. So I think that is something we observed. They're still working their stuff out about who they are, even if they're a parent.
1: And I mean, I I think, I mean, the idea of adolescence is a relatively recent concept, right? I mean, does that originates what like the 40s or 50s. I I mean you know this field better than I do, but I mean recognizing adolescence as a period of, of social development is a is my understanding a relatively recent phenomenon.
0: I wish I knew for sure. I'm trying to think I can remember that the the earliest identification of adolescence, but I couldn't tell you what decade yeah. that was
1: in. I mean even childhood as a in, as a separate
0: new enough yeah. It's not part of all of our understanding right. of human development. Right. I mean,
1: today it's a common understanding. I'm, yes. I'm just thinking like long historical arc. Right. Yes. Um, that being an adolescent and having this special developmental period between childhood, being a child and being an adult is a relatively recent phenomenon. And then on top of that, we have this emerging adulthood idea that's literally only 20 years old. Right. That, that we – not that it didn't exist necessarily but that we are only talking about it as a you know in our literature as a as a thing but at the same time i think i think you know looking at careers right so looking at your you know our talking about careers it's so much more necessary as we move into this knowledge economy where you have to build enormous human capital in order to be in order to be middle class or or not you know even yes. in kind of the upper half of of the population you can't just graduate from high school and get a job at the mill or the or the factory and have a middle class life anymore you have to build a, an enormous amount of human capital and it has to for it to be effective my and this is you know kind of more my area i don't mean to hijack my own podcast go here. for it yeah
0: <laughs> let's do it no i love it
1: uh, but but i mean you just but i think this fits in your research as well is is you you have to have the time to kind of figure out, you know, going to those, those, you know, that exploration part of emerging adulthood is um, where am I a good fit? Like, you know, am I supposed to go to medical school or should I be a, you know, or should I, you know, which is an enormous, you know, that's a 10 year journey, 10 years plus journey, you know, should I go into business? Should I become a teacher? Should I, where do I fit? And all of those things require years beyond high school of training if and so this emerging adulthood idea to me strikes me as and the fact that it's now extending to 29 it seems to me to say the economy that we live in in the in, you know in developed western economies requires so much more time to become a full adult i don't know what do you uh,
0: I, I think you're right. I mean, I, not to just talk about my own life, but I did my master's in P Street about as fast as you can do them in a social science field. And I graduated when I was 28. So, you know, it had taken me 10 years right. um, post high school to land in with the with the degree I needed to do the job, much less get the job. And so, yeah, I do think that there's Part of what creates the context within which emerging adult happens, and Jeff Arnett did a great TED Talk about this, is the changing economy, right? And and the the conditions of our economy that require a certain amount of education and skill in order to make a successful life. Success defined mostly economically, which we know we could define in many ways. Sure. But yeah, it does matter. It does matter how long we need to train to get into a job that's going to sustain us.
1: And I think, You know, now coming back more in your uh, realm or or tying back to romantic relationships in this period is if you become a parent at a young age, it becomes so much harder to accumulate that human capital to go to college to you know explore possibilities when you're also trying to take care of a baby or a young child at home. For sure,
0: and if you think about the the time between when we most Americans start some form of relationships during adolescence, certainly not all, but many. On average, we start during adolescence, but we don't get married until our late 20s or early 30s, which means there's a period of 10 or 15 years that people are partnering and unpartnering, coupling and uncoupling. And that means that we also are trying to figure out how am I going to build an independent life that I can support myself financially but also, I'm hoping to be partnered, but I don't know what the other half of that equation is going to be. In, in a society where we expect that most couples are going to be composed of two earners, you have to be able to coordinate your career with someone else's in order to form a, a family that makes sense and meets everyone's needs. And so, I think there's also this tension between I need to be independent enough that I could support myself. But maybe I'm also in pursuit of a committed relationship that would maybe add some significant amount to the budget of my household. And so I think there's tension there um, that we see young adults really trying to grapple with and figure
1: out. Yeah. What's the average age of marriage now in the United States?
0: I think it is 29 for men and 27 for women. Okay. Or 20. It might have gone up to 30 for men. It might be 28 and 30. It inches up, you know. Once yeah. you've been a researcher for a while, you got to update yourself because <laughs> right, what right. you remember to be the case is sometimes not true. But it's right up there in those late twenties.
1: So it really fits the the emerging adulthood model, like on average, right? It does. Yeah.
0: it sure does. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, you know so I will draw on my own personal experience. So my wife and I got married three weeks after we graduated college. You know, um, mm-hmm. at twenty two, um, and uh, and then we had. Uh, our first child when we were 25. And I, what's interesting, I think what's interesting about my experience is we were an anomaly among our friends, even in the nine, even in the early nineties, we were Mm -hmm. an anomaly among our friends. And, but we, what's interesting, I think, is we were not an anomaly in the military community that we were embedded in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I graduated from college and went straight into the army. Um, and, easily half of our my peers in the in the army were married and as as officers and many of my um, enlisted soldiers that worked with me and for me um in particular ones who worked for me were you know were 18 to you know 18 or 19 or 20 and they were many of them were married Mm -hmm. um so it's interesting it's interesting to see how I, i don't know i mean I've always thought of it as economic stability maybe leads to that early matching. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or have you seen any research on that?
0: I think it's context also, okay. right? So when we look at things like the region of the United States or rural, suburban, urban, you know, where I grew up in the deep south, it's really common for people to get married a little earlier in their 20s, maybe more toward their mid-20s. Okay. Um. But if you look in a major metropolitan area, you're gonna see people getting much getting married much later. Yeah. So even your immediate social context, what's your proximity to people who are getting married or er- relatively early or relatively a little later, it's gonna influence some of your human behavior. And so what we see is there's actually different pockets of when people do things. And so the culture of the military. Yeah. I'm pretty sure oh, yeah. that military Absolutely. says we move wives, not girlfriends. Right. So right. there's some yep. <laughs> there's some significant benefits, right, to being legally married that are going to be they're going to be pull factors into marriage that uh, people out in civilian life aren't going to have.
1: And then I think, I mean, then of course, like you said, context and you know, good point. Um, you know. Bulk of the military is made up of people from the South and the Midwest, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> not from New York City nope. uh, or Boston. Right? I mean, like when I would meet a, somebody from New England, I'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like wait." <laughs> um, so yeah, okay. So we draw on a, a, we draw from a, regions of this of the of the country that had an earlier. That's interesting. I uh, hadn't really thought about that from that perspective, but definitely, like when we made our decision to have our first child, it was kind of like well, you know, Nick and Tammy just had their first child yep. and, and Keith and Kathy are having their first child. Well, you know, that's all our, that was our, you know, our, our community, right? So.
0: Yep. I think that has more influence than sometimes we realize. Who's around us? What are they doing?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, there, there's definitely some conversation in my field about how you choose a partner and, and really wanting to make sure that folks aren't just sitting down in the game of musical chairs, right? Everyone is sitting down. So I just I also sat down. I like to, yeah. I just also quickly sat yeah. down like with yeah. who I was dating right now. Yeah. And so making more intentional decisions and not letting inertia just kind of pull you along into marriage or parenthood. And so th- there's, there's a, some interesting research around that is how can we help folks make deliberate decisions about those types of things when maybe sometimes a lot of things in their environment are pulling them toward a major transition.
1: Well, and that would go back to the discussion we had about, about that book promises. I can keep a lot of these kids were these young people who were basically kids who were having children and it was social context. A lot of it was, you know, everybody else has done it. Like, um, yeah.
0: One of the things that, uh, th- you know, those, uh, one of the authors of promises I can keep went on to do another ethnographic study with a different co-author of fathers in low income neighborhoods mm-hmm. who had children, um, outside of marriage called, uh, doing the best I can. And having looked at both of those books, one of the things that's really interesting and striking is that low income couples are generally really delighted by the prospect of parenthood in, in a life that can be, um, a little bit difficult and where there are limited opportunities for advancement in career. Being a parent is meaningful. That's a meaningful role in society. It's a meaningful, um, it's, it's a, it gives a person's life purpose and direction. And so I think it's really important when we talk about lower income families or young families that there's great purpose and intention behind becoming a parent. There's a lot of joy and promise in it. And yes, we see that over time, sometimes there are some, some real stumbling blocks in being able to have a a stable and prosperous life. But it comes from this place of hopefulness and optimism that a child brings to a family, to a person, to
1: a community. And I, I I think about, I think from that book, but also, you know, observation, there's a lot more intergenerational um, support and, like grandmothers are much more involved in the care and raising of those children. Mm-hmm. And they've achieved a level of stability at that point um, when maybe some of our, our colleagues are just having their first kid. They're having their grandkids, right? Right.
0: And there's <laughs> yeah. less mobility too. I right. mean, there's. it's really interesting. I, I wrote a paper once about – cohabitation transitions, how people move in and out with each other. Mm. And I ended up drawing on the housing instability literature and the residential mobility literature. And low-income individuals move way more often than people with more resources. But locally, right? They're going to move home to home in search of the best and most stable housing, or sometimes they're pushed out of their housing because of eviction or because of um, problems with the actual structure of the home. They can no longer dwell there. Well, higher income people are are mobile, but they're mobile in a much bigger geographic area, which means that they're moving away from their support system. Missouri so- to
1: New Hampshire, for example.
0: exactly right my parents live in virginia my sister lives in missouri my brother lives in georgia we're all over the place because we had the resources to do so and so it's interesting to look at how mobility operates in different social classes um and and how that then relates to the social supports that are available to us
1: i i I just i find the social supports a really interesting piece of you know of the decision making process Mm -hmm. well so I want to talk a little bit about some of your research. Um, I looked at a few of your papers. I thought maybe we'd talk about a paper called Form uh, Form and Function of Romantic Relationships you did with uh, uh, Sanner. And you talk about four types of relationship forms and how they have different purposes. So I thought that was really interesting. The four forms that you talk about, and, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit, are romantic experimenting, hookups casual dating and committed relationships and and how each of these have like a purpose. So, so what does that mean? How do, how do these different things have a purpose? Like how does a hookup have a purpose?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could talk, I could definitely talk about that for a while. So what was interesting about this paper is I, I had collected individuals' r- relationship histories. So I sat down with a person and said, with a big paper timeline, I said, tell me every person you have ever been with in any way. This can be romantic, sexual, one, the other, both, tell me, all of the people. And uh, then we talked about each person. Uh, Well, actually, we we charted it and talked about people as we charted it. And then this study really was looking at, we know people have this 10 to 15 years that they're partnering. I said that earlier. What are they doing with that time? What are they doing? And the form part of that paper, these four types are kind of unsurprising. It was interesting to pull them from a different type of data, but these are things we knew, right? This was not new information. Yes, people casually date. Yes, people hook up. Yes, people have committed relationships. It was interesting to find, yep, same things we thought were here, here. What was new about that study was figuring out that what people learned from being in these different situations that we sometimes think of relationship forms as a hierarchy where hookups are the most meaningless at the bottom and committed relationships are the most meaningful at the top. We actually kind of the more committed something is, the more we expect it's going to matter to you, the more we expect you're going to learn from it. And what we said is nah, nah. Take out that hierarchy and just assess what are the things that people are able to learn as they move through different types of partnering. How do they leverage their experiences with different people to help them hone their sense of what they want and what they need, and to to give them uh, to help them develop in this one particular area of their life, their romantic development. So hookups are some of the most interesting examples in this paper because we sort of went in assuming. I don't know what you would learn from that. Do you learn what kind of sex you like sometimes, but sometimes these were very meaningful experiences where they learned something fundamental about who they are, or they shared a brief and uncommitted, but very intense connection with another person. And it was, it was just formative. They could say, yes, at the end of the day, this was just sex, but it was sex that taught me something about how I want to relate to other people or how I understand myself. And so I moved forward in a slightly different direction because of it. I think that's interesting and important and really difficult to access outside of asking people what all their stories are yeah. about their love lives. Yeah, yeah,
1: so so even though this was a brief thing, one night stand, maybe it was a pivot point of some sort for them and their development. That's... Sometimes it was. Okay. And other, like um, – you include in romantic experimenting uh, crushes. So, so talk about this this phase. What what is romantic experiencing and what are crushes? It, F- from a technical perspective, all right. So it we probably te- all know. We
0: will be super technical. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, you know all of this was retrospective. So I would talk to them about their current relationship. So of course that was in the moment, but everything else about the history was tell me what you remember about this person. That was the prompt. Tell me what you remember about Joe. And they would tell me whatever they remember. And oftentimes as people recounted their earliest experiences, whether those happened in adolescence or a little bit later, whatever their earliest romantic experiences were, they were very dismissive of them. It was very dumb, but I definitely dated Tammy. And I think I just liked her hair color. You know, there was these sort of, it was really nothing, but at the time it felt like something. And so we boiled that down to experimenting. Or sometimes women, especially, would say, I didn't even like this person. I wasn't even really attracted to them, but they were attracted to me. So I shrugged. Sure. Right. There's not this, there's sometimes not a foundation of much there. And in those cases, you're just trying it on. What would it be like if I dated this person for a minute? And that's where we got this experimenting piece. And the crushes came under that because very few people mentioned crushes, but I think there are, there probably are many that people had that they did not talk about yeah. because you don't remember them. They're yeah. fleeting, they happen and then they pass. And in the grand scheme of your life, they're just not important. But for the people who did mention them, these were crushes that lasted a really long time years of their adolescence that they pined for a person that they never got to have. <laughs> and it, it it was formative for them as a person. Why did they never want to be with me? What does it mean that I wanted them and they didn't uh, want me? Oh,
1: interesting. Okay.
0: And okay. or that it just never came together. And so I think it's interesting to see the way we, we kind of work our stuff out mm. with other people. That's what that code and theme and type was really about.
1: Yeah. And casual dating um uh, how does that fit into
0: all yeah. the hits and misses? I love talking about casual dating because it is something almost everyone does, but is not well operationalized in the literature. We use it as a, in surveys, we almost always ask, if you're asking about your relationship status, we'll put that in there. But then it's never a key part of the study. It's, it's kind of a throwaway thing, uh-huh. but it's actually the way that we vet partners. This is the way that we find out, oh, I really do not like people who chew that way. And I do not think I can be with someone forever who does that.
1: What does it mean? What does casual dating mean as opposed to say either a hookup or a committed relationship? Like where, how does it fit in between?
0: Yes. For us, we, we defined it as you are figuring out whether you want to have a committed relationship, a hookup. You have no expectations necessarily of having a relationship with this person, or you might want it, but they don't. So it never is going to move past just sex. A casual dating relationship is you're getting started. You are spending time with this person. You are maybe having sex with this person to figure out, do I want to have a more substantial relationship with them? And sometimes the answer is yes. And then you're in a committed relationship. And oftentimes it is no.
1: So, and then committed relationship is yeah. committed, right? So you're not dating anyone else. I mean, what a, uh, that depends. Assume, okay. There was a lot. You know, there, was, true, a yeah. of,
0: there was a surprising amount of – there was a fair amount of consensual non-monogamy in people's relationship histories.
1: I'm such a prude. Uh, okay. Oh, so,
0: yes, I, I, I did an interview and I was – something I do at the beginning of interviews is I do uh, genograms. I draw people's families with boxes and circles and it's just a way to sort of map out who are you, how do you fit into a family. This is my family science background, I think, coming out. And I, I was interviewing a young woman and I, I put her on there and I said, and I I believe you're married. And she said, yes. And I, I put her husband on there and they had two young children and I put them on there and she said, do you want to put my boyfriend on there? And I said, yes, let's do that. You know, it was one of those qualitative research moments that I was like, I'm going to, yeah, definitely. I saw that coming. Great. Let's do it. And so I added this, this other guy on there and her story was fascinating. Her um, I think I can say this because it, it, it's quite um, quite distanced from the actual scenario, but her spouse had some medical issues that prevented them from having the type of sexual relationship that they wanted. And so he said to her, please go and find a, an outlet for this. Let's, let's, do, let's meet that need outside the marriage. I can't meet it. I would like you to have it met. Let's do that. And so she found someone in a very similar circumstance whose wife also had medical issues. And so they formed a very specific relationship that filled a very specific need for each of them while they remained fully committed to their marriages. And that's not something we could ever get at in a survey. It's part of what I really like about the type of work I do. Thank you for surprising me. I love it. You know, there's room for you to surprise me and explain to me this complexity of your life. Yeah. That's I don't remember where we started. No, nah, nah, we were talking oh, the about committed, committed relationships. relationships. I got you.
1: So one of the things I thought was interesting about this paper is, you know, I read these things, you know, uh, having a training in economics. Um, and I immediately jotted down in one of the, you know, in the margins, romantic capital. Um, because we, you know, that's how I think as an economist is like, you're, mm-hmm. you're going along and you're building up your skills. Like, it's like this specialized form of human capital that, you know, allows you to pick and choose and find the right match and, and deal with the, the conflicts, inevitable conflicts and so forth. Is that, is that a fair, Characterization of what you're capturing there.
0: I think I think there's absolutely something to be said for that. I resist a little bit some of it. There are economic models of relationship, right? There's social exchange theory talks about how we're using our own resources and the resources of others to make matches. Meh. But (laughs) but uh, in this paper, I defined the concept of romantic development as the way that we build the capacity to form and maintain the types of relationships that we want. Building capacity feels to me like capital, right? Mm -hmm. We're building capital Mm -hmm. in order to both find the types of partners we want and maintain good relationships with them that that can be stable. And so, yes, I do think that we gain a lot of the experiences we have with romantic partners leading up to whatever type of partnership we want is is a way of building capital and and so I, yeah i think that's a very and interesting then application
1: having that higher level of capital allows you to have maybe a healthier relationship or hopefully hopefully yeah so what did they need to learn like what what did people what did from your study like what was it that if you will makes up that that romantic capital or, or capacity
0: yes i think that um oftentimes folks needed to Move away from the rules they perceived from society. What am I supposed to be doing in relationships? What's the script? What am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to act? What am I supposed to look like? Moving away from those expectations toward an internalized set of how do I want to be? How do I want to interact? What do I want to look like and be like around another person? I think that transition from external influences to internal ones is kind of the culmination of romantic development. How do we make our own rules about what we want our relationships to be like um, and be able to follow through with that in a meaningful way?
1: So you also did a paper, a typology of emerging adult romantic relationships. And here you talked about um, five types of relationships uh, happily independent, happily consolidated, exploratory stuck and high intensity uh, and I don't uh, and is there a is there a hierarchy there again or is it more of a
0: there isn't and okay. you know these were cross-sectional data so this was a snapshot mm-hmm. of a couple at any given time yeah and that meant that I think you know you're you're sort of thinking about, do people move from one type to the other and i think they certainly could but we didn't have the data to capture that
1: okay so it's not longitudinal you're not no. checking with them once and then coming back a year later are you still is your you know characterize your right. your relationship now
0: but i would say the relationship history study helped me to see that relationships absolutely evolve <laughs> in ways that we can't capture very easily unless we have really meaningful short term longitudinal Hit 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 to collect data. Pe- things are changing pretty rapidly, and in hindsight, folks can talk you through that evolution, right? So I have some of that sense of how things evolve. But in this study, it wasn't possible to elaborate on that in any other way.
1: I wanted to highlight in particular the um, well, I, I the one that struck me so like happily independent strikes me as at uh, like early stage kind of relationship right so I'm characterizing that accurately happily consolidated is an established relationship that is working well for yes. the for the couple uh exploratory kind of seems to echo back to maybe casual dating absolutely um I'm going to skip over stuck for a second and then high intensity was an interesting one to read about ta- right? ta- talk about that what, what is a high intensity because re- I mean like I want to be in a high intensity relationship don't I?
0: I don't think you do there's a lot <laughs> going on there <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Right. This, the highs are high and the lows are low. Uh, it's uh, kind uh, of volatile. Okay. And there's some – it's a little bit old now, but there's some research that suggests that some couples are just kind of volatile and it totally works for them, right? If it's working for both people that they have
1: they kind of – They just need a lot of drama.
0: There's just – there's a lot – they need to put a lot out into the world when they have conflict, but they also have lots of positivity, this can be sustainable if it works for both people, but it's really tricky yeah. because the conflict part can't be contemptuous and ugly. You know, it can be a little loud, maybe if that's your style, but it can't be mean. Otherwise, no amount of positivity is going to help you dig out of that. So I think what we were seeing with dating couples is they're working out. We, we have a lot of strong emotions toward one another and it leads to a lot of big love and a lot of big... Insecurity and instability and all these other things.
1: You mentioned contempt, and it just triggered a memory. I, I meant to look this up before we sat down. Are you familiar with there's a psychologist? There's, there's a, I think, a parapsychologist that do observations of. Oh couples. yeah. Okay. The good old Gottmans. Gottmans. Okay. Yeah. So. so yes. t- Talk about that for a second. Right. Just so kind of
0: in, the, in the in the nineties. John Gottman and, and some of his colleagues did a set of observational studies where they brought folks into a lab, and they hooked them up to all kinds of physiological measures, heart rate, sweat, and they asked them to discuss an area of ongoing conflict. And then they coded for four things that they ended up identifying. They called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, Sounds and, promising. And these are things that quite reliably predict whether a couple would be divorced three years later. Um, and they include, this is another pop quiz, yeah. getting ready for teaching that class next semester. Um,
1: Sorry, I'm springing this one on you. Oh,
0: it's okay. No, this is, this is stuff I should know. Uh, criticism, which is just telling someone what they're bad at. Um, contempt, which is purposefully making someone feel small, insignificant, stupid. It's usually sarcasm, like really negative sarcasm. It's not funny. It's pointed. It's meant to hurt you. This is the, Spoiler alert. This is the worst of the four. Don't do that. Um, there's stonewalling when people shut down and there's defensiveness where when this really is usually a response to criticism, someone criticizes you and you don't, you you don't hear that well, you bounce it right back and say something maybe equally nasty to them. So these are the four things that, that kind of come up. Um, in in that I'm trying to remember where we
1: we were talking about high intensity relationships and you talked right. about contempt and that triggered my Thank my you. thought yes. on this but contempt is the is like the determinant or or they found was if if you showed a high degree of contempt or uh, you know the yes. material more then the relationship was basically doomed.
0: You were really going to have a hard time staying married. And super interestingly, later they did more research about um, the health implications of the four horsemen. And women, especially in highly contemptuous relationships, had significant um, health complications. Their immune systems were not as effective. They were sick more often. So it can be said that really good marriages are very protective for people. They have really good at leading to positive mental and physical health outcomes, yes. but bad marriages are very bad for people, particularly women. And we can actually see that demonstrated in their physical health, Ab- above and b- beyond the many other variables that we might see that affect health. A really contemptuous marriage is going to is going to be a big problem.
1: I mean, that's totally consistent with what we know about the effects of stress, long term stress. Yes, uh, I mean, there's, and that goes back to my introductory comments about wellness versus health, right? Exactly. So, um, of having—that's really—I like the way you phrase that. Uh, that a good marriage is a protective, like it's health protective. Like you're actually yes. healthier if you're in a good supportive marriage. Yes. Yeah. So the last category was stuck, and I'll, I'm going to kind of use that to segue into this, uh, uh, the, another paper you did. Um, uh, so this this the typology you did with Beckmeyer also did a paper with Beckmeyer on feel called feeling stuck talk about stuckness in relationships.
0: I loved I loved working on this paper because it came, it bubbled up in the most uh, organic way from those data. You know, I had these, these relationship history interviews and it was just painfully evident that sometimes folks ended up in relationships that they stayed in too long and they felt incredibly stuck in them. And so, um, Dr. Beckmeyer and I worked to sort of, analyze what does it mean to be stuck and how does how do folks get stuck and how do folks get unstuck and what we really found was that being feeling stuck was this the sense of wanting to leave a relationship that the constraints felt a little bit too high to leave or that looking back you realize you stayed in too long those, those couple of things. And that really what the process that happened that got folks stuck is that they had early positive experiences in the relationship that made them want to stay. But then as the benefits went down and the costs kept going up, they kept imagining they could go back to the time when things were good, when the balance of positives versus negatives was more favorable. They imagine this, this scenario where they could, they could be back in that place. And so they stay. And, um, sometimes they stay for a really long time waiting to get back to, Something they imagine could be. The other thing that was super interesting was that we had enough information about the context of these relationships to know that sometimes people got stuck because they wanted to leave and then things kept happening that kept them from breaking up. So, you know, I was going to break up with her and then I came home and I was going to do it. And she told me that her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And I can't, you know, I can't leave now. I can't, we've been together three years. I'm not going to abandon you dump now. Right. I, can't, I can't dump you now. And so, the connections with family were fascinating. And it was the death of a family member or the incarceration of a family member. These major life events that had nothing to do with their relationship sometimes held folks in place because they felt too obligated to, to see this person through a difficult time in their life. But as young adults, that's not what we want for them. Right. Right? A, a committed marriage between adults, yeah, you're going to weather some storms to try to save it. For a dating relationship, you want folks to be able to move on, to know that they need to move on, to move on, because what are they fighting for, really?
1: Yeah, and you talk about constraints in, in the stuckness piece. So mm-hmm. um, so maybe one ex- you just use an example of, of kind of a, in a major life event, um, like a family member being sick. But what gen- gen- more generic constraints are you talking about?
0: Sometimes they're things like um, having a shared residence cohabitation is one of the best researched constraints. As soon as you move in with a person, you not only are going to need to break up with them, you're going to need to find another place to live. And that actually makes people way more likely to stick around. It's a, it's an extra barrier. Sometimes there are financial things, but in dating couples, it's a little bit less likely that you have some financial ties to that person. Sometimes it's, uh, it's more it's more individual, right? It's not wanting to start over, not wanting to have to forge a new relationship and tell that new person all of your old hurts and stories and memories. You know, we we put a lot into our partners. We give them a lot of ourselves as we build intimacy with them and the prospect of starting over sometimes feels really exhausting. And so that's another constraint. Is that sense of not wanting to have to Re-enter the field of dating and finding a person and building up all of that closeness again.
1: Yeah, you mentioned marriage. I mean, like, marriage is an intentional constraint, right? Like, I mean, hopefully you go into it with, you know, ooh, we're all lovey-lovey and you know everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, marriage is like, you know, you listen to the vows, like it's a, it's a serious constraint, right? Um, sure.
0: The the theory and research we drew on in this paper makes a distinction between felt constraint, I feel like I can't leave. okay. And the constraints that we might associate with something like marriage. So not all constraints are bad. Right. If you want to be with this person, then the cons- adding constraints can feel very stabilizing. I am in love with you and I want to imagine a whole life together with you. Adding the constraint of marriage feels very comforting. Like, whew, okay, we have decided we're going to at least intend to move forward forever. That feels really nice. Constraints don't always feel bad, but felt constraints are the pocket we put in of, yeah, I don't feel like I can leave. And that for most people is not a good feeling.
1: Right. right, right. Well, that was the point of stuckness.
0: Right? That so is that's the point of feeling stuck. Right right. 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 So hopefully, you know.
1: So I wanted to, I was talking about that's, we were talking about your formal research, but you've also got a, a cool little blog it was a yeah. little light I, I shouldn't say uh, so you were invited to do a blog with psychology today That's that is just so cool uh, how did that come about and you know talk about like what did they t- what are you what are you doing there what, yeah. what are you told to do and what are you what are you trying to do with it
0: yeah so talk about more serendipity um, I had a sabbatical from teaching in the fall of 2021 20, and in September I was sort of cold emailed uh, to to perhaps become a contributor to psychology today, to do some writing for a, a much more general audience than most of our work is written for, and I jumped at the chance that I had really wanted for a long time to translate some of my own work into something just more consumable. You know, scientific writing is so difficult to get through, even if it's qualitative research and it's kind of compelling, still a format that's not very accessible, and so it was a great platform for me to just start to take some of the ideas that I've learned and put them not just into language that is more accessible, but also into more practical applications, right? So it's not just, let me tell you about my study in a much shorter format. It's what might you do with what I learned from this study. And that's been so much fun. It it feels, it feels like being able to, um, Take the things I've learned and, and maybe help someone with it in a really, in a really nice way.
1: Well, I'm gonna put a link to the to the blog in the um, in the show notes here. But uh, I, I read all, I read all your posts and and I enjoyed them all. You're you're really good. Oh goodness, you're a really good writer, <laughs> and, and and I feel like you you really do make the the ideas very accessible. Um, three that I just three that I quickly that I I I really enjoyed. Um, one was who says you can't choose your family really resonated with me uh, and made me think about my army life, like my army career. So I was in the army for 23 years and, you know, being from my wife and I are both from up here in New England and there are no army bases in any, I mean, like the closest one is like Buffalo or somewhere, you know, it's like eight hour drive from home. So really like we had to make, like mm-hmm. a family, like, you know, we were having kids and, you know, we were a young, young married couple far, far from home. And it was very much, you know, you didn't – and you didn't necessarily get to choose. I mean, you could choose who you'd spend time with, but, like, these people who are around you may not have been the people you would have chosen to, to yes. choose from. Mm-hmm. So, I just – that one really resonated with me.
0: It's really fascinating that you picked this one. Because it is the least read of all of these. I noticed that. <laughs> I think it's funny that you looked I, I did.
1: I, yeah. But, you know,
0: it was almost Thanksgiving and I felt so clever. I'm like, you know, sometimes it can feel really, it can feel really burdensome to come up on a major holiday that's kind of family focused and to either not have good connections to your family or be very far away. Or we were still very much in the thick of COVID. I suppose we still are. Uh, And so, you know, uh, let me write this piece about the power that we have to choose our family. And (laughs) just no one read it. (laughs) Just no one read it. And it's it's been interesting to reflect on, okay, what is it about that topic that is just less resonant for some folks than some of the other things that I've written?
1: Um, I mean, one of the – my wife and I talk about like what was our – what were our favorite assignments um, in in our in our military career? We lived, we moved a lot and had a lot of different communities. And one of the ones that we look back on in terms of the friendships that we developed uh, as being our like uh, of all the places we lived and all the assignments we were at, the place where we had. We developed the best friendships and then just the number and the robustness of them was at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. So, we got sent to – Really? So, we went – we got sent. So, for listeners who don't know where this place is, um, it's – everybody says, oh, so you were in Louisiana. Did you go to New Orleans a lot? And I'm like, New Orleans was a four-hour drive <laughs> from where we were. Um, the closest target was an hour drive. There was oh. like literally – there was a Walmart in town, and that was like that's big, you know. New Englanders
0: have a hard time with how spread out the rest of the country a- absolutely is. Absolutely right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So this is you know, so we were very much an isolated rural community, and we lived on post, and um, and and, and what a wonderful experience! It was like we had been dropped back into some sort of '50s sitcom. Like, um, there were a hundred kids on the street, and um you know and running up and down the adults you know there was no place to go or do so we all had to like bond together it was just a wonderful thing and I, I you know we look back on i mean talking about choosing a family like we're still in touch with many of those people well, this is you know almost 20 years later who are some of our closest friends from that time in our lives I mean, obviously it's a long time ago now but Anyway, just uh, I, that one struck me. So yeah. you know, struck and me. I, I don't. I guess I mean, I'll
0: <laughs> say. I know, right? What is it about you, Mark? I, know, I know, don't I will. I think That's one of the things that I really like about that that piece that might have gotten lost a little bit is we also are choosing our families when we choose our partners, and I think sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to heal the wounds of our families of origin, God. but we also God. have this incredible power yeah. to make a choice. In, in the form of our partner yeah. to make a different type of family or to try to make a family that's similar to the one that we had a really great experience in. And that's why studying romantic development in emerging adulthood feels important to me, is that we do have these opportunities to make choices that are going to build our lives in a positive direction. And if we know a few extra things about what makes that possible, we, we might make a different and better choice, right?
1: Another one I really liked was, uh, "You should stop looking for a soulmate," and you talk about destiny beliefs and growth beliefs. So talk mm-hmm. to what's the what's the difference between destiny beliefs and growth
0: beliefs? Yeah, this is I cannot take any credit for this. This is a work by Raymond Knee, and he basically describes two orientations toward relationships and people with destiny beliefs, kind of. Assume that they're looking for the one right partner. And if they find them, the relationship will be quite smooth because it was all about finding the one. Most of our media is giving us this message, right? Absolutely. Find the right person and you are good to go. Folks with growth beliefs uh, have an approach that says, I'm likely to need to learn and grow into this person, right? As we face challenges together. We're going to get better at understanding each other, solving problems, moving forward. Not surprisingly, folks with growth beliefs tend to have a, a bit of a better romantic set of outcomes. Their relationships are more stable. They are more happy. Because if you have destiny beliefs and you believe that you have to find just this one person, you don't react especially well to your partner changing, to being different from what who you think they are. And the truth is, we all continue to develop all the way until we die. And so you need a little bit of flexibility to be able to move with your partner's own development. And destiny beliefs don't always provide that. So, It um, yes, strikes
1: me it would be very rigid. There right? would be a rigidity in your relationship. If
0: you, right. And it might also, I'm spitballing a little bit here, but if you think there's a, a one and you think you found them, and then things start to go wrong. Maybe you start to just question, well, maybe they weren't the one.
1: I just, I need to and get back I, out on the market. Right, I got to go the find the one oh, right, right? right there. <laughs>
0: there is one. You aren't it. Ah, um, yeah. I was I'm wrong. out. Yeah. Right. Whereas, you know, we know that marriages are going to be challenging or long-term relationships are going to be challenging and you got to kind of figure out how to work together through it. If you're just ready to, to bail, if it's not the right person, it's not going to be quite as, as positive.
1: Yeah. My wife and I are celebrating, um, 30 years. Are you? uh, Congratulations. Two weeks ish. Yeah.
0: I feel like we should stop congratulating people when they get (laughs) married. This is not very hard. And we should culturally really start cultivating the big congratulations for 10 and 20 and 30. These are the real accomplishments
1: to stay. My my wife deserves a prize for (laughs) flexibility and all that. Uh, And then the the last one I wanted to point out was um, why it's so important to know just how much a partner can annoy you. And why is it important to know that a partner can annoy you?
0: It it basically is saying everyone has annoying traits. Welcome to the club. We have t-shirts. Everyone is annoying. We all know this. And so part of making good partner choices is choosing someone whose annoying traits are not that big of a deal to you. We know it is universal that people are going to have these things that they do that are not super ideal. But choosing someone whose annoying traits are really profoundly upsetting to you or affecting to you is going to make your relationship with them so much more of a a slog that if you pick things that you're like, meh, chewing with your mouth open is really not that big a deal to me. It doesn't actually gross me out. It's fine. Uh, Yes, choose that. Choose that set of things. So there's really two lessons there. One, yes, people are going to annoy you. You need to expect that. Anticipate that people are going to have traits you don't like that you have to figure out how to live with. And two, be strategic about it. Try to choose a person whose traits are are pretty palatable, even though you can objectively see, yeah, that would probably be annoying
1: to some people, but it's not a big deal. That's nice. I mean, that's. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but it's like, what's the cost? It's it, you know, like every relationship is a balance of of costs and benefits. Economist speaking here, um, and, yes. and, and what you're saying is really like, and maybe it even goes back to that. What was it? The highly volatile relationship, or the yeah the uh, High intensity relationship, right? So they have very high costs and very high. It sounds like very high highs and very low lows. Yes. And, like maybe they should just pay attention, like, pick some who's Not going to make you insane. Yes, oh. maybe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hit that middle ground. It'll be more sustainable uh, for most funny. people, right?
1: Uh, I like that. You know, I just you know, I'm a, I, for me, it's it would be. I mean, um, it would be probably things like financial, you know, I'm so conservative, you know, financially and just somebody who wouldn't wouldn't match with me on something like that would be like, that would be a deal breaker. Like, it
0: would a, be a constant source constant of, source of stress. conflict and yeah. stress and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Yes.
1: So I wanted to kind of ask a couple of closing questions. Um, and you've been, uh, you've been doing research on like, emerging adults and, and romantic relationships you, so I'm not going to feel bad saying this because you already said it. Was you're no longer an emerging adult? It's true. Uh, it's it's no longer me. Search. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're happily married. You've got kids. Like uh, so. So, do you think you'll stay with this field? Is this something that you know, uh, or do you think you're are you looking to maybe make a pivot to something else? I do
0: think that I will always be doing research on young adults because I think there's just a lot. There's a lot going on there that's still worth investigating. And, um you know, I'm going to have that touch point working with students. I'm I'm going to, my my students are emerging adults and I'm going to keep getting older, but they're going to still be emerging adults. And so I feel like that's going to fuel that part of my research for a long time, but we've hired a new faculty member. Who's going to join us in the fall and she studies older adults, romantic relationships. And so I think I might dip my pinky toe in the waters of a longer a longer look at romantic development, because I really think just like human development, romantic development doesn't really end for us. Sometimes we have divorces or remarriages, or sometimes we just find ourselves widowed or dating later in life. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. And as our population ages, there's just going to be a lot to say about how can we help older adults have really positive romantic development as well. So if she'll have me, I I may start to do a little bit of collaboration and publication in that area as well.
1: So, you know, you mentioned we both have, you know, we teach young folks here, uh, emerging adults. I wanted to ask, and, and, you know, tying into my interest in career development and, and, you know, I do research on mentorship. What advice would you give uh, workplace mentors of emerging adults with regard to how, That the emerging adults' romantic relationships play into the emerging adults' professional and personal development. And let's assume here that's not a creepy relationship, like a like. Let's say you're a forty year old executive, and you've got you know a twenty two year old young lady who's just joined your you know your 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 team, right? Um, And you're looking to mentor them about you know kind of their lives, kind of finding that work life balance and all that.
0: Absolutely. So. I think it can be easy to assume that folks can and should be able to compartmentalize their professional lives, that they come to work and they're doing their job, right? They're, they're going to come to work and they're going to be a nurse. And I think especially for young adults, especially for that first 10 years after someone has graduated and is starting their career, just acknowledging that they're not going to be able to fully compartmentalize, that the things that are happening in the rest of their life in their romantic relationships, in their caregiving responsibilities, it is going to influence their work and not pegging that as unprofessional, but accepting it as part of the whole human being, right? This is just going to be. And so offering them a little bit of support or just space to have those things happening that may affect a small part of their work, I think is one small thing that anybody in a mentoring or a supervising position can offer a young person. They're still working a lot of things out. There's a lot that's unsettled about a young person's life. And just giving some space for that to be there and be okay, I think is really helpful and supportive.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's that exploratory component of emerging adults. Absolutely. They're not fully cooked yet.
0: They are not totally cooked yet. And that doesn't that doesn't infantilize them. Young adults are full of knowledge and purpose. They're fantastic. I I love working with young adults in my teaching because they 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 bring so much to it. But there there is this other component that's still unraveling, and it's it's got to be okay. Give them some space for that. It'll make them loyal. It'll make them great employees later. It'll make them balanced. It'll help them not burn out. These have long-term benefits, I think, to the person working with the young young
1: adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of last question, but maybe it's a big one. Um, you know, we joked about me-search, mm-hmm. you know, doing research for yourself and your own growth. Uh, so what's the most important thing you've learned from your own research and study that you've applied to your own life or how you think about your own life?
0: You know, sometimes when... My husband and I have a conflict. I, I, this was really earlier in our relationship. We would look at each other and say, "Like we study and teach other people <laughs> this stuff. You know, we're okay. We know this stuff. We know how to do this. Let's do it. And so in many ways, the, the things that we teach and the things that we study have been part of my life for a long time. I use the things. They're helpful. I think the most important thing I've learned, however, is that a good romantic life is made up of many, many small choices. It's not just the big choice of pick a partner, decide whether to get married and when decide whether to have kids and when those things are important. But the way that our relationships feel has so much to do with the very small decisions we make all day, every day. Am I going to greet you with warmth? Or am I going to just go about with what I'm doing? Am I going to respond to you with patience or am I going to be snippy? Am I going to help you fold that basket of laundry or I'm gonna, am I going to quietly walk past you and go watch TV? Like these are the choices that make our romantic lives, our relationships strong or weaker, more satisfying or less satisfying. So the extent to which we can convince folks that it's all the small choices that matter the most. I think that's the most powerful tool we have for empowering people to have good romantic lives.
1: Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for
0: having me. This has been so fun.
1: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.